Good morning, Sound City. How are we doing today? Oh, you guys sound a little chilly. Maybe not caffeinated well enough. For those of you not met, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are going through a sermon series called Teach Us to Pray, in which we're looking at the Lord's Prayer line by line. Today we find ourselves uh, in the phrase, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And, and with the, the, the lights and the power off and this whole situation being like it is, it's a really good reminder today that the church is not a building, the church is not a program, the church is not a service, the church is not lights or sound systems. The church is the people of God, uh, united by the Spirit of God, gathered together to learn from the Word of God. Amen? And so I, I hope that you're able to just, uh, as best as you're able, kind of focus in today and allow the Spirit to do what He wants to do in your heart today. What I want to do is I want to begin by reading from Psalm 51, which is a psalm of repentance. We've been reading from the psalms each week to learn how the Word of God teaches us to pray. And then when I'm done with that, I'll invite you all to stand and we'll say the Lord's Prayer together, and then we'll dive into the topic for today. So this is God's Word from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Church, I'd like to invite you to stand, if you would. Let's say the Lord's Prayer together. And because we don't have the words projected up on the screens, just remind you, we'll say, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's the one line that uh, depends on the translation. So let's say this together, church. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father God, we thank you that we can come before you today uh, on backup generator power. God, I thank you that we can come before you today most importantly, knowing that your spirit is here with us. God, I pray today that you would help us to have hope. You would help us to have a vision that you could indeed do something in our hearts and in our lives today as we gather here today. God, for some, they're coming in with a, a weight of not knowing your grace and not knowing your forgiveness. For others, God, we're holding on to bitterness or resentment or unforgiveness. God, I pray that you'd send your spirit now to do a work in our hearts. God, help me to teach with clarity Guard my lips, help me to only teach that which is in line with your truth, and God, help all of us to have teachable and receptive hearts, and it's in Jesus' good name we pray, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> when I was in high school, I had a couple of friends that trained uh, for sports really seriously. They were, they were deeply involved in athletics, and in the summer times in particular, they would go work out every single morning from about 5.30 in the morning till 10.30 in the morning. And they had a, a, a private uh, coach who would work with them. And the scary thing was his background, he was a, uh, a drill sergeant for the Marines. And so they would do workouts that were not just your average workouts. And I specifically remember one summer, he got on a kick of having them put on backpacks with 100 pounds of rocks in them and then go hike up into the mountains of Anchorage, Alaska. And uh, I never went and worked out with them when they were doing crazy things like that for obvious reasons. But one time they did talk me into, I think it was a Saturday, and they did talk me into, hey, let's go for a hike. And, and, and they put a backpack on me, and I think they were generous and only loaded 40 pounds of rocks into my backpack. And we went for a two, three-hour hike up into the mountains near our house where we were kids. And I remember getting done with that hike, 
And after just a, a relatively short period of time, got back to their house and you take that backpack off. And, and it, was a, it was a unique experience because in just a few short hours, you actually uh, became very united with this backpack full of rocks. It was a bizarre experience because you take the backpack off and at one point it was it's very freeing. It's a very liberating feeling. Oh, thank goodness I don't have that heavy weight on. But it was also a little bit uncomfortable because kind of standing up and stretching my back out for the first time in a few hours uh, felt a little bit disconcerting, felt a little bit hard to do. I believe that in this room today, as people are coming in, and as you're sitting here today listening to me teach, I believe that there are some of you who are experiencing in your soul a 100-pound backpack of rocks. As we talk about this idea of receiving God's forgiveness and about giving the forgiveness that we've received, there are some of you in here today that feel like in your soul you are wearing a 100-pound backpack full of rocks because you do not know that you are forgiven by God. And there are others of you here today who have been hurt very deeply. You've walked through some painful experiences and you're struggling to let go of that hurt. You're struggling to walk forward in forgiveness and and you have a 100-pound backpack of unforgiveness in your heart. And I want to challenge you today to dare to hope and to dare to believe that God might actually want to do something right here, right now today as we open his word and as his spirit moves in your hearts that God might actually want to free you from that heavy burden that you're carrying. But I also am going to warn you, it will be freeing, but it may not be comfortable. And some of you need to hear that because you think, yes, someday I'll get to forgiving that person or or someday maybe I'll experience that hope. Some of you maybe have even just given up the hope at all. Yeah, this is just what life is like for me. I walk around with this burden, this 100-pound backpack on my soul, and I'm here to tell you that there's more freedom, there's more love, there's more forgiveness, there's more joy, there's more grace to be experienced in the cross of Jesus Christ than you ever dared think was possible. And so my prayer today is simply that that this wouldn't be something theoretical for you. This would be something real, that the Holy Spirit would actually move in this room and in this time right now because electricity or not, backup generator or not, lamplight or or full room light, the same Spirit of God is present with us and he wants to do a work in your hearts today. Amen? When we we talk about this idea of forgive us our, our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's, a, that's an interesting word because even as we just experienced in saying the Lord's Prayer, some of you maybe learned it in the Luke chapter 11 version where it says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You know, the Bible uses a variety of different words for sin. There's not just one word for sin. There's a variety of different words and they each have different connotations. Each have different meanings. There's, there's one word that means uh, uh, to trespass or to, to see a line, to see a fence, to see a boundary and then to say, I'm gonna cross over that. It's an intentional type of sin. It says, I see that line and I just don't care. But the Bible also uses a word that means uh, to shoot an arrow and to miss the mark. And, and some of you have had that experience where you're just trying your best. And no matter how hard you try, you consistently seem to, to fall short. I really tried. I didn't mean to stumble in that way. I didn't mean to hurt somebody in that way. Anybody ever experienced that? And the word today, one of the, the, the top three or four words that the Bible uses for sin is debt. The word Debt. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have at one point in your life experienced the burden that being in debt is? Some of you have known what it's like to live under a crushing weight of debt. Maybe it's credit card debt. Maybe it's medical bills. Maybe you went through a tough season and just that that weight of debt is something that you can actually feel. It it maybe even makes you uncomfortable to hear me talk about it. Some of you have had a tremendous amount of debt and you've had it forgiven. I actually was just talking to someone recently this last week that had a a, a massive amount of medical bills that were forgiven and just the weight that that feels like. Isn't that an amazing feeling? If you've ever had somebody that you owed a lot of money to say your debt is forgiven, it's a freeing thing. And if we're honest, the way that we feel when people sin against us, there is an indebtedness that happens. And it's not necessarily an an actual financial indebtedness. Um, I know for me, I've had my car broken into a couple of times and and people have stolen things out of my car and and I could place a value on those things. You know, they stole my my CD player, $15. I don't know, maybe it's worth more than that. I always bought cheap CD players. But the violation, the feeling of that invasion of privacy, that was way more weighty than the financial uh, cost of what they actually stole. Anybody experience that? You know what I'm talking about? Even, even if you could put a dollar amount on it, if you had your home broken into, 
the, the cost was so much greater emotionally. The cost was so much greater spiritually. Pastor and, and author Tim Keller uh, talks about that experience. He says this, most of the wrongs done to us cannot be assessed in purely economic terms. Someone may have robbed you of happiness, reputation, opportunity, or certain aspects of your freedom. No price tag can be put on such things, yet we still have a sense of violated justice that does not go away when the other person says, I'm really sorry. When we are seriously wronged, we have an indelible sense that the perpetrators have incurred a debt that must be dealt with. I want you to turn, if you have your Bibles, and if you brought a flashlight also, uh, Matthew 18, or maybe you have your phone or your, uh, your tablet, Matthew 18, because I want you to read a, a story that Jesus tells that speaks of our sin as debt in very clear terms. Matthew 18, I'm going to start in verse 23, and the context is that Jesus has been teaching, and Jesus has been teaching people about what it means to forgive, and Peter comes up and says, hey, let me ask you some more questions about forgiveness, and so Jesus starts to tell this story to help explain the idea. This is what Jesus says. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, if you're familiar with this story at all, you likely know that that is a, an immense amount of money, an astronomical figure. What I learned this week in, in one commentary I was reading was that at the time that Jesus taught this parable, the entire nation of Israel had about 600 talents in circulation at the time. So this is 10,000 talents. This means that this servant owes a ridiculous amount of money. It would be the equivalent of me saying, you owe you know, the, the president of the United States $47 quadrillion. Like just an unpayable, ridiculous sum of money. And since he could not pay, obviously that huge of a sum, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. He was going to be put into slavery, into indentured servanthood. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But, and this is where the story takes a, a downward turn. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a, a hundred denarii. A denarius is about a day's wage. So, you know, a couple, a couple months worth of, of wages. And he seized him and began to choke him. You can tell this guy has an anger problem. Began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. It's interesting how both servants say, I'm going to pay it. Both servants' reaction is, I will pay this debt off. It's just food for thought. Servant fell out and pleaded with him, have patience and I'll pay him, but he refused. And he went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, some fellow servants saw what had taken place. They were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, in wrath, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also... Jesus concludes with these terrifying words. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Whew. Here Jesus is, is showing us the connectedness between our sin against God and other sins against us. And here Jesus is using this metaphor of our sin being an unpayable debt. There's a, there's a medieval theologian, his name was Anselm, and he wrote extensively about this, and he says that, that this debt that we owe to God is infinite because God is an infinite God, and we as humans are finite. We're unable to pay this debt. Even if we spent all of eternity, we are unable to pay the debt that we owe to God. And, and, and I want to spend the remainder of the time that we have together here just answering some questions. You know, as a, as a pastor... Even just as a Christian, I have these conversations with people fairly frequently about their sin, 
about their hurts, about their forgiveness. And I, I've kind of compiled a, a top seven questions list, and I just want to ask these questions, and I want to spend some time answering them. And again, I know that for many of you, this is not a theoretical topic. Talking about your sin and talking about your sense of guilt and talking about the way that you've been hurt, this is not something that exists out in theory. This is something that you are dealing with very presently and very personally right now. And so my hope and my prayer is that by asking and answering some of these questions, that God would minister to your own heart even right now. First question is this, Aaron, I hear what you're saying about this great, huge debt, but let's be honest, is my sin really that bad? Am I really that bad? What's with all this negative talk? I mean, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect, and, and you know what? I've never robbed a bank. I've never perjured myself. I've never stolen money. I've never even rooted for the Yankees, not even once. <laughs> Am I really that big of a sinner? When I would say to you that if you compare yourself to other sinful people, sure, maybe you're not that bad. But when you compare yourself to an infinite and holy God, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. I heard a story of a pastor one time telling that he, he sat down on an airplane and, and uh, was hoping to you know, get some quiet time. And as, as often happens to us pastors, people say like, oh, you know, what do you do for work? It's like, well, I'm a pastor. So do you want to get into this thing about Jesus now or do you want to wait for a little while? <laughs> This is going to happen. He said, okay, so they started talking, and, and the guy that he was sitting next to says, oh, you're a pastor, that's interesting. You know, me, me and God, we, we, have, we have an arrangement. We have it worked out, you know. Oh, what, what is that arrangement? Tell me about this arrangement. Well, you know, try to be a good person. God understands nobody's perfect. I'm, I'm doing the best I can, and, and, you know, me and God, we're cool. Says the pastor, this, this story he was telling, he says he took out a napkin, and he, he put a, a, a dot at the top. He drew a line at the top, and he said, okay, this is God. The Bible says that God is perfect, he has no sin, he, he has never had anything to do with sin, he can't dwell with sin, he's perfectly holy and he's perfectly righteous. And he goes, so that, that's God, that's his standard, it's just absolute perfection. He says, what's the, who's the most holy person, the most righteous person that you can think of? And the guy in the airplane goes, Mother Teresa. Okay, that's good, Mother Teresa. He goes, I've actually read her works, I've heard her speak, and, and as she's gotten older, she has said things like, the older I get, the more I see how sinful I am and how far short of God's standard I, I fall. He goes, so I think Mother Teresa would probably put herself somewhere down here, and he kind of went midway down the napkin and put another dot. He goes, that's Mother Teresa, and he goes, where would you put yourself? And the guy had enough wherewithal to put himself just a little bit below Mother Teresa. <laughs> and he says, but look at that, that's still a huge gap. How are you going to go from all the way down here to all the way up there to, to perfect so that you can be with God? Because God can't be with sin. And then he proceeded to explain to him the gospel of Jesus. That's a good, that's a good illustration. And, and for us, again, sometimes, you know, when we compare ourselves against other people who are worse from us, I mean, there are so many people that are worse than us, <laughs> especially during political season, Right? <laughs> But when we compare ourselves against a holy God, we see that we really are in deep trouble. Even in our modern tolerant society, there are different penalties depending on who you, who you wrong. Let me give you an example. If I lied to you, that would be wrong. It's not, not a trick question. Amen? That would be wrong, right? If I lied to you, that would be wrong and it would be hurtful. If I lied to the IRS, what's going to happen to me? They're gonna, yeah, they're going to take my kids. They're going to, Right? They're going to want their money back. If I lie to the President of the United States, do you know that I could be liable for treason and depending on the nature of the lie, I could actually be executed under the law of the United States of America? When I lie to God, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, do you see how the penalty is more serious depending on who the offense is against? And it's not just the bad things that we do. We do bad things. But do you know that the Bible defines sin as a whole lot of good things that we know we ought to do and we fail to do? The Bible says in the book of James that if you know the good that you ought to do and you fail to do it, that is also sin. The Bible says in the book of Romans, one of the most frightening verses to me, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 14 that Anything that we do that does not proceed from true faith in God is sin. That means that you could give money to every homeless shelter and every food bank and you could serve at your church religiously, but if not done in a heart of worship to God, then even those good deeds are viewed as sinful. 
The, the, the man Anselm I was mentioning earlier, he puts it this way. What is the debt that we owe to God? Here's his answer. That every wish of a rational creature should be subject to the will of God. How many of you can say, yes, every wish I have ever had in my heart has been in perfect alignment with God's holy will? Don't say it, because you just went down another couple of clicks. Listen, I love you, and I want the good news to bear the full weight that it can have in your heart, but we can't get to the good news without first looking at the truth of the bad news that we are in a hopeless, helpless position apart from God's grace and mercy. We are like the servant with uh, an unpayable debt to the king. Yes, your sin is really that bad, and it's not morose to focus on it because I want the good news to do its work in your heart. Another question I'll get then, somebody might say, okay, I get it, I get it. I'm in a bad spot. I'm in a real helpless state. I need God's grace. What do I do? Church, what's the answer? Jesus. What's my part? Starts with R. Repent. It's not a bad word. You can say it with confidence. It's not a four-letter word. It's not a, may the word repent never be a dirty word in our church, amen? Because there's so much joy and there's so much freedom to be had in true repentance before our God. And people will say, okay, I get it. That's repentance. I hear this word repentance, but what does is, what is repentance really look like? And I want to give you three things that real repentance looks like. The first one would be in our psalm that we read today. If, if, you, if you can, flip back to Psalm 51 and, and, and look at David's heart. Look at David's heart. Like, for example, in in verse 3, he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You get the sense that David has this burden. He is weighed down by his sin. Then he says something really interesting. He says, against you and you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. If you guys remember the backstory, David has before writing this psalm, he has skipped out on his duty of leading his, his soldiers, leading his army into battle. He stays home. He's playing hooky. It's dereliction of duty. While he is at home and bored, he starts doing the peeping Tom thing. He sees a woman taking a bath. He lusts after her in his heart. He seduces her, gets her to come, uses, misuses his authority as the king to have her come. He lays with her. She becomes pregnant. He realizes that this is a bad deal. So he has her husband, a soldier who's off at war, who David should have been off at war leading. The soldier comes home and he tries to get them to lay together so that he could try to make the, the husband think he got her pregnant. But the, the husband, the soldier is such a devoted soldier. He says, I'm supposed to be at war. I can't go home and just be be hanging out with my wife. And so he sleeps on the front porch of the palace and David goes, that didn't work. And so he sends him back out to battle and has him put on the front lines and commits conspiracy to murder, has him killed, and then takes the man's wife as his wife and marries her to cover up his affair. And David has the guts to say, God against you and you only have I sinned. No, I'm pretty sure, David, you sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against her husband, Uriah. You sinned against your entire army. You sinned against the entire nation. But David had the first element of real repentance, which is a broken heart before God. Real repentance has a broken heart before God. Real repentance isn't, I'm sorry I got caught. Real repentance isn't, I'm sorry, I now have to deal with the consequences of my foolish decisions. No, real repentance starts with a genuine brokenness before God. That even though your sin may have harmed and affected somebody else, it is first and foremost a sin against God and needs to be dealt with in that direction. Real repentance includes a broken heart, and it doesn't mean you have to be a a crier, okay? Some of you may express sorrow in different ways, but some of you have never experienced that sorrow over your sin, Some of you maybe have never experienced that that true brokenheartedness, and I pray that you do, because on the other side of it, like I said, is freedom. There's another passage I would take you to in terms of a a picture of what genuine repentance looks like. It's in 2 Corinthians 7. So if you want to write these down, flip there with me if you want to look at them. 2 Corinthians 7, here's here's the context. The Apostle Paul had written a, a couple of letters to this church that was really messed up. They had all sorts of issues. And he, he had spoken some really strong words to them. And now he's writing them back to say, I'm really thankful because I see real repentance in you. I see God's work in you. And so he's encouraging him. And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And listen to this. For see what 
earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. And what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. And this is the second aspect of real repentance. It starts with a broken heart before God, and it moves into, I want to change. I don't want things to be the same that they were. You can be grieved, you can be sorry, but not doing anything about it is not true biblical repentance. True biblical repentance says, I I cannot believe that I have sinned in this way, and I really want there to be a turn. That's actually what the word repent means. It means a, a turn, a change in direction. And the apostle Paul is encouraging him and says, I see it in you. I see this brokenheartedness before God, and now I see this desire to clear yourself. What indignation, what passion, what zeal. I got to do things differently. That's the second element of true repentance. And the third element of true repentance is actually at the beginning of it in verse 10. It says this, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to, I love this phrase, salvation without regret. There are some of you who have lived a life of sin and you say, I will always carry with me regrets. Now, you may always carry with you sorrow over what you have done, but the Bible, the word of God says that there is a type of repentance that leads to a salvation without regret, which means that the third element of real repentance is hope and joy and a promise for the future. It is not enough to just feel bad and it is not enough to say, I want things to be different. Our God is a God of redemption and restoration, amen? The enemy loves to deal in condemnation. I can't believe you did that. You're the worst. Don't you see how you're the pits? And it sounds like the first couple of stages of real repentance, but in Christ Jesus, we always have hope. In Christ Jesus, we always have a vision for a future that says, yes, though I have fallen 10,000 times, the Lord will pick me up again and he will not reject me. There is always hope in the cross of Jesus Christ. There is always redemption in the cross of Jesus Christ. Real repentance, yes, has a broken heart. Real repentance, yes, has a desire to do things differently, to change. And real repentance is focused on Jesus and the salvation and the grace that we've received in him. Some of you are living under a weight of condemnation from the enemy, thinking that you're walking in repentance. You're not. There's hope. There's hope. I want you to know that. True repentance also takes into account the great cost for our forgiveness. So that's another question. Next question would be, what does is, what is real forgiveness look like? By the way, I have these questions here in front of me, and the power's out. I don't have a clock or a timer, so we're just going to go for a while here, okay? I also can't see you that well, so you might be falling asleep, and I would never know. This is, this is wonderful for you. But I, I hope that these questions, I want, you to, I want you to let them rattle around in your heart and in your mind for a minute, because I want you to chew on these. I want you to see different ways that these relate to your heart. And this is the third question. What does forgiveness look like? And let me start by saying what forgiveness does not look like, because we have some false versions of forgiveness in our culture. They masquerade as forgiveness, but they're not true forgiveness. The first one is this, just tolerance. We live in a culture of tolerance. And tolerance means I'm going to just put up with you. And, and, and at, uh, there's a time and a place for tolerance, amen? There's a time and a place to say, hey, we disagree. We just need to kind of live and let live. We'll move on. But, but tolerance falls far short of the Bible's ideal of forgiveness, amen? Tolerance says, I guess what you did, maybe it's not even that bad. I don't know. Tolerance likes to redefine right and wrong. So I guess I can't be hurt at you because maybe what you did wasn't even really wrong. That's not real forgiveness. Tolerance, tolerance is not a bad thing, but tolerance is a shallow thing. It's a surface level thing. I'll just I'll put up with you. I'm not going to punch you. That's tolerance. And maybe for some of you, that's all you've got today, and that's a good start. A second version of false forgiveness is pretending. La, 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 it didn't, you know, nothing happened. What happened? Or, or forgive and forget. Just move on. You guys, the the Bible says that God remembers our sins no more, but it also says that he's omniscient. He knows all things. It's not like God, the all-knowing God of the universe, actually forgot what happened. He, He doesn't forget what happens. God knows, but he doesn't treat us according to those sins. So for us to just try to pretend, forget, you know, forgive and forget, that's not real forgiveness. A third type of forgiveness sometimes that we see in our culture is just this kind of toughen up and take it. Yeah, they hurt me, but it, 
What doesn't kill me makes me stronger, and you know, I'm just going to learn from it and grow from it and just be tougher. It always makes me think of the scene in, in the Monty Python and the Holy Grail when he's like, you know, you need to stop fighting. He's like, my, your arm is off. He goes, I've had worse. You know, no, you're, you don't have any arms left, merely a flesh wound, right? I think we've all either done this or we've known somebody who's done this. Yeah, you're, you're hurt, you're beat, you're, you're, you're in pain. Just, ah, shake it off, right? Just crank up Taylor Swift. I made kind of a guy reference, I need a girl reference. Actually, many of you guys listen to Taylor Swift too. I'm confessing my sins too. <sighs> Toughening up is false forgiveness. That's not real forgiveness to just say, oh, it didn't hurt. And a fourth type of false forgiveness is private forgiveness. My feelings only, or uh, can I call it Dr. Phil forgiveness, right? Forgiveness is all about you. You need to feel better and you need to release the debt. And you know, you've heard that saying like, like not forgiving somebody is like drinking poison and waiting for them to die. And, 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 and absolutely, when you forgive someone, it has a healing and a freeing effect on you. It's good for you to forgive, amen? But true biblical forgiveness is not about you. First and foremost, true biblical forgiveness understands that God is involved. He cares that we forgive because he has forgiven us in Christ. And true biblical forgiveness is relationally minded. It means I want to walk down, if possible, a path towards reconciliation. You may not be able to truly reconcile with somebody. Somebody may have hurt you very deeply and then they have since passed away and there's not going to be an opportunity for reconciliation. Somebody may have hurt you deeply and they are an abusive and unsafe person and you do need to have a boundary in place where you don't open yourself up to that type of hurt or abuse anywhere. But real biblical forgiveness is relationally focused. It says, if at all possible, I would love to reconcile. That's biblical forgiveness. It's not just in your heart. It will be freeing for you, but it's not about you. Real forgiveness. I got five things that real forgiveness is. The first thing about real forgiveness is it acknowledges the reality of the wrong. Real forgiveness looks the wrong square in the eye and feels the weight. And I might add, it does not minimize and it does not exaggerate. Real forgiveness looks at the truth of the situation. Secondly, real forgiveness releases the debt that is owed. And a bunch of you just said, put on the brakes right there. Release the debt that is owed. Can I just say it's hard? I'm not saying it's easy, it's very hard. It's costly. In particular, you have to give up your desire to get even. You have to give up your desire for justice. You have to give up your desire for revenge. You want, you've been hurt, you've been wronged, you want to get even, you want things to be equal, and forgiveness is costly. It says, I'm going to just give this up. Tim Keller, the, the pastor and author I quoted earlier, he says this, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. It is a form of suffering. You not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation, and opportunity, but now you forego the consolation of inflicting the same on them. You are absorbing the debt instead of taking it out on the other person. It hurts terribly. Many people would say it feels like a kind of death. Yes, but it is a death that leads to resurrection instead of the lifelong living death of bitterness and cynicism. And for us, it means we trust that Jesus paid it all. So real forgiveness acknowledges the reality. Real forgiveness releases the debt. Real forgiveness, number three, keeps on forgiving. How many of you know that forgiveness is a process? There's a moment where you start that forgiveness, but it is a often lifelong process, depending on the weight and the gravity of the wrong that was done. If you go back into uh, Matthew 18 and remember this conversation that Jesus was having with Peter, Jesus and Peter are talking and, and Peter comes up to him after Jesus has been talking about forgiveness. He says, you know, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And then Peter, thinking he's going to be really generous, goes, as many as seven times? Like, can you believe how holy I am? I'm going to forgive him seven times. And Jesus says, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. The point from Jesus is not 490 the point is, you just keep forgiven. I like the way that C.S. Lewis puts it because he talks about how we have to keep forgiving even the same person, even the same offense. I, this is C.S. Lewis. He says, there's no use in talking as if forgiveness were easy for we find that the work of forgiveness has to be done over and over again. We forgive, we mortify our resentment and a week later, some chain of thought carries us back to the original offense and we discover the old resentment blazing away as if nothing had been done about it at all. 
Quick show of hands. Anybody ever experienced that? I thought I had forgiven. Why is this affecting me this way? We need to forgive our brother 70 times 7, not only for 490 offenses, but also for one offense. We keep forgiving. Forgiveness is a process. Think of it this way. If you're keeping count, you're just postponing revenge. To keep count is just to postpone revenge. I'm, I'm just keeping count until the time when I can really get back at you. Forgiveness says I'm going to keep forgiving. When that resentment flares up, I'm going to keep walking towards you in God's grace. Number four, real forgiveness forgives even if unasked for. You may have someone come up to you and say, Dear friend, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you and I want to offer you my deepest apologies and I know I can never make it right, but I love you and I'm so sorry and I just want to repent to you. And you get to say, I forgive you and you hug and you cry and that's wonderful. You may not get that, but God's word to you is still forgive. Because the Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us that while we were still hard-hearted and rebellious, before we ever asked for God's grace, Jesus came and died on the cross for us. It's a hard call, but if you're a Christian, that's what you've received. And number five, real forgiveness actually allows for consequences. Real forgiveness doesn't mean that everything turns into a bed of roses instantly. We believe in a God and we believe in a gospel where the promise is eternally, all things will be made new, every wrong will be righted, every debt will be paid, but right now in this life, sometimes there still are consequences that have to be lived out. And just because you forgive somebody doesn't mean that they might not have to, for example, go to prison to pay for their crime. Just because you forgive somebody doesn't mean that everything's gonna be uh, you know, champagne and caviar all instantly. Sometimes there's real consequences. But real forgiveness still focused on the relationship even in that place. For us as Christians, the place where we see this forgiveness lived out is the cross of Jesus. At the cross of Jesus, we see the reality of sin. God doesn't pretend. He doesn't say, oh, it's not that bad. No, the cross is ugly. The cross is ugly because our sin is ugly. God names it. God puts it on full display. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. He says, this is how bad your sin is. It actually costs the eternal, perfect, precious son of God his very life. It acknowledges the reality of the situation. Number two, at the cross, the debt is absorbed by God himself. The debt that we owe to God, God pays in full with the blood of his own son. Jesus pays it all. And none of that debt that we owe belongs to us anymore. We are free because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Number three, we see that the forgiveness is applied at the cross, but it's also a process that keeps working in our lives as we grow and are transformed to look more like Jesus. We are forgiven and we continue to walk in God's forgiveness each and every day. It is a process that we experience, amen? Number four, we see that at the cross, God loved us before we ever repented. Romans says that it's his kindness that draws us to repentance. When we see his heart to love and forgive us, we can't help but be drawn to his grace, and we can't help but want to walk in his, the repentance that he gives to us. And number five, we see that at the cross, sin is dealt with, but in this life, we still may have consequences to walk out. Maybe before you became a Christian, you were, a, 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 you were sinful with alcohol, and you were a heavy drinker and you ruined your liver and you come to Jesus, you are forgiven, you are washed clean. One day in the new heavens and new earth, you will have a liver that is perfectly restored, but in this lifetime, you still may have liver disease. We can pray that God would heal it. Maybe he'd be so gracious as to let his kingdom come in that way. But sometimes we still have consequences. I want those of you who are not Christians to know that you need to come to Jesus to have your sins forgiven, have your debt repaid. And I don't want to be one of those preachers that offers you the false promise that come to Jesus and everything in your life is going to be just amazing and perfect. It will be ultimately, and you will be forgiven of your sin. But there may still be difficulties and challenges to walk out. If there's anybody here who's not a Christian, I simply want to say there's an invitation for you to have your debts forgiven. You need your debt forgiven. You can't pay it. It's an infinite debt against an infinite God. Only the infinite God-man, Jesus Christ, can pay that debt for us because he is fully God and he's fully man. He can represent us before the Father and he can actually pay the debt because he's God. That's our Jesus. That's who he is. That's what he has done. 
Another question Christians will ask will say, okay, I hear what you're saying. I understand repentance. I understand receiving God's forgiveness. But if I'm already saved, why do I need to keep on repenting? Isn't that that kind of negativity that just keeps people bound up in shame? Well, I would say this. Number one, how many of the last seven days in this week have you not sinned and been perfect? And the answer is zero. Don't lie. The answer is zero. Each and every one of us, even though we are saved, even though we are forgiven, we still struggle with sin. James chapter 3 says, we all stumble in many ways. 2 Corinthians 3 says we're being transformed into the image of Jesus. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you're instantly perfected. The, the book of Matthew, Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, John the baptizer says that we need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, that we keep walking out repentance. And, and 1 John 1, 1.9 says if you claim to have no sin, that you're a liar and the truth is not in you. And that's written to Christians. It's a letter written to Christians. We all have remaining sin. If you're a Christian, here's the good news. You are no longer a sinner. That is not your fundamental identity. You are a saint who still struggles with sin. The Bible calls it the flesh. The Bible calls it the old man. The Bible calls it the old nature. And that, that new man is alive. You are a new creation in Christ, but doggone it, that old man dies hard. He needs to be bludgeoned with a rock every day. The rock of the word of God. That's a weird metaphor I just came up with. I don't know if I'm going to keep it. Your sin is, 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 is ever wanting to rear its ugly head. And God says, no, we're going to put that to death. You're going to die daily. And let me say to you this. If, if you're a Christian, you are forgiven by God the judge. But as you walk in relationship with God as your father, you need his daily forgiveness. There's a difference between the forgiveness of a judge and the forgiveness of a father, amen? That one time decisive, the, the gavel has been slammed down, you are forgiven. That's what we receive on the day of our salvation. But the day in, day out, I'm sorry I sinned against you. Would you forgive me? Forgiveness of a father is now what we live with as Christians. Do you see the difference? You need the forgiveness of a judge and in Christ you have it. Now you need the forgiveness of God, your father. So you're a Christian, you still got to repent. It's not just a one and done deal. Another question comes up, okay, I've repented. What if I don't feel forgiven? I've repented, I've prayed, I've asked for forgiveness. What if I don't feel forgiven? And I would say for some of you, it's, it's a process. You're in process. You're learning what it's like to feel forgiven. But for some of you, you bump up against a wall. I've prayed, I've repented, I'm trying, I'm, I'm working hard. I just, I just don't feel forgiven. What's going on? Let me offer you four possible suggestions for you to investigate in your own heart. First one is simply this. This might be a little bit obvious. You might not feel forgiven because you might not be forgiven. Now, I say that in love. I don't want you to have some sort of false sense of forgiveness. Maybe for you, you don't feel forgiven because you have never truly come before God with the type of biblical, God-focused repentance that I just talked about a few minutes ago. I'm not meaning this to pile a heavy burden on you or to shame you. I want you to have freedom. I want you to have joy. And I don't dare want to offer you some false sense of forgiveness that isn't based on anything real. I want you to have real forgiveness. Some of you have, have tricked yourselves into thinking that you are a Christian. I'm, I'm speaking to somebody here today. You've tricked yourself into thinking that you're a Christian just because you go to church every once in a while and you try to be a good person. But, but being a Christian is far deeper than that. It's walking in relationship with the Father God through the blood of Jesus, having a, a brokenness in your heart that understands that only Christ can satisfy. I, I'm not meaning this. I, again, I'm not trying to burden you unnecessarily. I want somebody here to see that you're already burdened and you're, you're taking a placebo. I want you to have the real thing. I want you to have the real medicine. Some of you don't feel forgiven because you're not forgiven. And I want you to know there's so much forgiveness available today. That's the good news. It's never like, it's never like a you know, liquidation special. We're going to run out. There's no more forgiveness next week. It's just Jesus is the kind of Savior who just loves to give forgiveness. Some of you don't feel forgiven because you have an idol in your heart. Some of you need to check and see if there's something in your heart that's more important than God. You say, yes, God, I received your forgiveness, but what I really need is I need the forgiveness and acceptance of this, this idol. Let me give you one example. Maybe, maybe you grew up with a really demanding father and you could never do anything good enough for this father. And now that you've come to Jesus, you say, yes, I'm forgiven. I, I have my heavenly father's acceptance, but that's just not good enough. I actually need my earthly father's acceptance. And you need to repent of that idolatry. You need to understand that God's forgiveness just blows anybody else's acceptance and forgiveness out of the water. Amen? Maybe... 
you don't feel forgiven because you're letting your experience trump the truth of God's word. Let, let's be honest. We don't experience a lot of true forgiveness in our world or in our culture, right? It's, it's in rare form. It's in rare supply. But just because you haven't experienced it a lot in your life or in your friendships and your relationships doesn't mean that when the Bible says that you are forgiven, that you're not forgiven. And some of you need to stop letting your experience trump the truth of God's word. God's word is more true than your experience. Can I say that? God's word is more true, it's more real than your experience. And, and lastly, some of you don't feel forgiven because maybe you're repenting of the wrong sin. And here's what I mean by this. You don't feel forgiven because you say like, well, I know that the Bible says that, that God forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. Sounds kind of noble. Like, oh, you beautiful martyr, you. I can't forgive myself. I just can't let myself off the hook for what I did. And I'm telling you that you're repenting of the wrong sin. You need to repent for your arrogance and your pride. Because it is pride to say, God, I know that you say I'm forgiven, but my judgment is more important than yours. What I say is more valuable than what you say, God. That's pride. I love you. God loves you. Don't let your declaration of your right standing before God be more valuable than the declaration that God made through the blood of his son Jesus on the cross. Don't let your opinion rise above that of God's. If you're a Christian, you're forgiven. And the call now for you is to learn how to walk it out. Here's my last question that I want to answer. That's a tough one. You ready? Okay, I, I hear what you're saying. Repentance, forgiveness, walking it out. Do I really have to forgive others? And here's, here's maybe a, a, a tighter way of putting it. Is my forgiveness really contingent? Am I really not going to be forgiven by God if I don't forgive others? I mean, that's what you read in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew 18. If, if you don't forgive others from your heart, from your heart, is he really not going to forgive me? Some of you are getting to know me well enough that you know how I'm going to answer this. You ready? The answer is yes and no. It's a tension that we have to wrestle with. The, the no is we are saved not by anything we do. We are saved by a sheer act of God's grace, by a sheer act of God's goodness. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. Ephesians says that it's not any of our works. It's nothing that we've done, so we don't get to boast about it. It's just God's grace. We receive his grace as a gift, and you don't earn gifts. You just get them. But there are also verses that say, like Jesus says in Matthew 18, you're not going to receive forgiveness from your father if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. So is it contingent? And here's, here's the way that it is contingent. If you are unwilling to forgive others when they sin against you, you have not truly come to grips with the great debt that you have been forgiven of by God. If you are unwilling to forgive your brother, you very likely do not truly have a repentant heart before God. If you are unwilling to forgive your brother and sister, it shows that you think that you deserve the forgiveness that you've received from God, in which case you have not truly received forgiveness from God because it is not a truly repentant heart that you have. Do you see that difference? So it's not contingent like you're going to earn God's forgiveness by forgiving other people, but it is a proof. If you're holding on to unforgiveness and you're unwilling to forgive, I have the, the, the fearful responsibility to tell you what the word of God says, that you may not truly be forgiven of your sins. And the good news is, like I said, there's always forgiveness in the cross of Jesus Christ. Always. Always. You can repent of your unforgiveness and begin the, yes, fearful, but life-giving process of forgiving those who have hurt you. If, if, if we believe that the cross of Jesus paid for our debt against God, this infinite debt, then we also believe that the cross of Jesus pays for the debts we owe one another, right? Jesus paid it all is big enough both for our debt to God and our debts to one another. So we sing that song in just a little while. I want you to think about both directions, our Godward debt and our debts to one another. Jesus paid it all. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So I ask you today, where are you at? Where are you at? I know this is a hard word. Some of you are really happy that the lights are extra dim right now because you need to do some wrestling with God. Have you gained some perspective? Are you, are you seeing your own sin as, as big as it really is, as big as the Bible says that it is? Are you seeing 
ways that you need to keep walking down the process of forgiving somebody else who's hurt you? Are you keeping short accounts, those people in your life that you're walking most closely with? Are you walking in forgiveness? Are you walking in repentance? Are you going to them and saying, hey, bro, you know, the other day, it's, it's not a really big thing, but the other day when you said that, it, it hurt me. And I just don't want to let anything come in between our friendship because I love you and I care about you. And I just want to keep short accounts like the Bible says to do. Are you doing that? Are you willing to believe that your sin is paid for, your guilt is washed away, and you have no more heavy backpack on your soul? You're forgiven? How do you need to respond today? We're going to respond in a variety of ways today. We're going to respond by, by singing. We're going to respond by celebrating the Lord's table. We're going to respond in prayer. The, the first thing we're going to do, we're going to respond with the giving of our tithes and our offerings. And so I'd like to invite the financial stewards to, to come forward and collect the offering now if they would. Musicians can join me on stage. If you're a guest, you're, you're under no obligation to give. You're welcome to if you'd like. But my invitation for anybody who wants to give today, give as an act of worship and an act of response to the debt that was paid for you by Jesus blood on the cross. Give with that heart. Give with that attitude. The amount is far less important than the heart with which you give. If you can't see to write a check in here, my apologies. You can give online some other time. Since we don't have the slides, I'm not going to go over the discussion questions right now. We do have some community group discussion questions. They're already up on our website under the sermons tab. You can go find the outline for this, this sermon and the discussion questions. But I want to talk about our, our prayer time, our response in prayer. Each week after the sermon, we've been taking time to kind of huddle up in groups of three and four and, and just pray related to the topic, related to the theme. What I'm going to encourage you to do today is I'm going to encourage you to uh, not huddle up, to not gather up in groups, but to, to spend some more time individually today. And I'm, you know, here's some things you could pray. Is there anything in your heart that you need to repent for? Is there anything that God is bringing to the surface now? Sin, uh, passivity, good things that you should be doing and you know you're not doing. Uh, areas that you want to truly have a, a broken heart. Maybe you've never experienced that broken heart. Maybe you are not a Christian and you want to come to Jesus for the first time today and receive this grace and forgiveness that I've been talking about. Maybe for some of you, there's, there's a person's face in your mind and you, your heart beats a little bit faster when you think of their face and you think of their name because you have bitterness or resentment or unforgiveness towards them. This would be a time to start praying, God, take me deeper in that process of forgiveness. Some of you want to pray for non-Christians that you know, people that have not experienced this grace, have not experienced this forgiveness, and you want them to experience. And this is a time to pray for somebody who needs to, to meet Jesus. But either way, I'm going to invite us to a time here, three minutes, four minutes, of just personal reflection, personal prayer. I'll have the musicians play quietly underneath, and then we'll gather back together in just a minute. And I'll close our time in prayer and then we'll sing and we'll respond with the celebration of the Lord's table. So if you guys would begin to just play now, take a few minutes and let your hearts be laid open before our Savior Jesus. <laughs>